0: Driving through rural Minnesota, you, we have probably all seen a number of barns, various stages of deterioration. Some just need a good coat of paint. Others have sagging roof lines. You've probably seen that barn here and there where it's, it's just leaning precariously uh, one way. It looks like you did not want to be under that side of the barn. Some are even in various stages of absolute Collapse. It takes a lot of work to maintain a barn. I don't have a whole lot of idea about it, but I would imagine that it does, and by the look of some of them, it certainly does. Take a lot of work to keep a barn looking well. And so, for various reasons, as farmers no longer need them, they sometimes just let them go. And the second law of thermodynamics kicks in. Toward the end of the last century, a number of scientists worked together to formalize into a scientific law what all scientists knew intuitively, and that is that all systems left to themselves tend toward disorder and decay. As a boy, I lived for a year next to a retired man who had a vegetable garden. It seemed to me that this old man lived his summer sitting in a lawn chair out on the yard. I cannot remember ever seeing him in his garden, and I cannot ever remember seeing any vegetables in his garden either. As far as the eye could determine, the only thing that grew while he sat there on that lawn chair was a very impressive patch of weeds. We just knew where the garden was because that's where the grass ended and the weeds started. If a retired man owns a garden, you might find him sitting in a lawn chair uh, passing his summer there, but you're not going to find him sitting there with a camera in hand ready to take a picture of all the beautiful things that happen naturally in that garden. If he wants to have a garden that's worth taking pictures of, you will find him routinely in his garden sweating as he pulls weeds, waters, and fertilizes his plants and fights off the miserable varmints or whatever it takes to get that garden to grow. The second law of thermodynamics applies to every system in our universe. Not just the gardens, but to the solar system itself. To Earth's atmosphere, to rivers and oceans and animal life and plant life, to our bodies, to our kitchens, whatever it is, it all decays, it all falls apart. It all tends toward disorder naturally. Don't look in my office after the service. It's happening in there again. Every system in our universe tends naturally toward degradation and disorder. And in our daily lives on planet Earth, we therefore find ourselves constantly, think about your own life, cleaning... And washing and dusting, repairing and replacing, stripping and painting, cutting and organizing, gluing and patching, straightening and filing, picking up and putting away, weeding and mowing, vacuuming, scooping, sweeping, exercising, dieting, visiting the doctor, the dentist, undergoing surgery, submitting to treatment. We live in constant resistance to the physical order to physical disorder around us. And what is true of the physical realm is no less true in the social realm. Proper, peaceful, uplifting human relationships demand constant work. They must be maintained. They must be nurtured. The disorder of war and hostility comes naturally. Peace and love and friendship require work. Consider, again, the effort that goes into, the, the exertion that goes into maintaining the following relationships. Friend to friend. Boyfriend to girlfriend. Husband to wife. Parent to child. Teacher to student. Discipler to disciplee. Church member to church member. Employer to employee. Neighbor to neighbor. Nation to Nation. Life is work. Physically and socially, we find ourselves fighting an uphill battle every day. Life is an ongoing experience of resistance. Last week, we searched God's Word concerning what is ultimately wrong with our world, stressing that we need the right diagnosis if we're going to live properly. What is it that's messed up? What is it that's broken? As Genesis 3 reveals, the problem is sin. At the very heart of it all is sin, and if we don't understand that, then we don't know how to deal with life. Continuing today from verse 14, we read God's Word concerning the consequences of sin. And once again, our understanding of what God reveals determines to a large degree how we live. Why is life so difficult? If we do not by faith embrace and apply a biblical answer to this basic question, we will suffer immensely. So I call you again to heed the text, not because you've never read these words, but because in them is the source of life. In them is the mystery of life. Help the key unlocking that mystery. These truths are foundational to everything that we are, to all that we experience, and are therefore the key to how we experience this resistance in life. Notice again chapter 2 as we go back to the context in verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, Genesis chapter two sixteen. the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from the tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. In chapter 3, beginning with verses 1-13, through we read the account of Satan tempting Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. Eve eats the fruit, disregarding the word of God in her deception. She gives to Adam, who blatantly disregards the word of God, and he eats. We hear then the gracious call of God to Adam and Eve as they're hiding behind a stand of trees. Where are you? Verse 10 of chapter 3. He answered, I heard you in the garden, that is Adam. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now think for a moment. Of how the text develops. Just think of it in structurally here. I think it, it's helpful to us to understand. Where does the narrative start? Chapter 3 and verse 1, we're introduced to the serpent, then to Eve, then to Adam, and finally God comes walking into the picture. Now we have God who calls out to whom? To Adam, who points to his wife. God deals with Eve, who points to the serpent. And God now speaks to the serpent. We will go back across again the spectrum. First, God will address the serpent, then the woman, and finally end this whole mess by addressing the man. And it is in these curses that we come to a proper understanding of the fallen world in which we live. God curses the three involved in the fall, in the sin, And we must perceive at this point that the serpent, the woman, and the man are not merely involved in an individual experience of crisis, but they serve as representatives of every human being to come. This is not just their story, this is our story. We witness, first of all, in verse 14, the curse of the snake. And we will note as we go through with each of the three, there is a physical curse And there is a relational curse. I don't think these curses are exhaustive by any means. And thus, the cleaning and the sweeping and the fixing and the straightening and the filing. None of that kind of thing is is addressed here. These are just representative. These are just snippets of the curse that will be played out in our life. But we find here a physical curse and a relational curse for each of the three. A summary emphasis is issued against them. First of all, in verse 14, we read, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl in your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. There is the physical curse. We cannot miss here the accountability of the snake, which raises a question. How can this snake be accountable for sin? God says, Because you have done this. Well, we also remember as we looked at chapter 3 and verse 1 that we've encountered here in the text a talking snake. And so there's much more going on. Snakes cannot tempt people. Snakes do not have a spirit that relates to God. They cannot disregard the law of God blatantly as a moral choice. The snake serves here in this text as representative of Satan and all who follow him on earth. So God uses the literal snake to serve as a visible reminder to the human race of how God deals with sin and ultimately how God will deal with Satan and his offspring, to whom we'll be introduced later in verse 15. But we note then the accountability of the snake is really the accountability of Satan and the fall of Satan, or the responsibility of Satan, I should say. We notice then, secondly, the isolation of the snake in verse 14, "Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals." Cursed. It. It's a divine a word of divine judgment on moral failure. That's a strange concept in the ancient world which this text was written because in the ancient world a curse was very common. The curse of the gods was something that was feared, but the thing was you could never know what they were going to do. You could never know when they were going to curse you. It was an arbitrary thing, but in God's economy, that's not the way it is. A curse comes through a moral failure. So we have here, cursed are you above all the animals. The idea here of the curse is a discipline for the ultimate good of the one who disobeyed, or at least of the humanity that that takes part in this fall and in the difficulties of it. Above all livestock and wild animals, The King James of cattle and beasts of the field, it's a reference to domesticated animals and wild animals. So I think here there's just an actual, literal, physical curse. You are cursed above them. The Hebrew gives the indication that you're isolated from them. You are cursed, not not above in the sense that your curse is somehow greater, that there is a truth to that. But it's more than that, it's that you as the snake are isolated. You're friendless. You're isolated from the animal world. And we notice that that isolation and that humiliation is evidenced in the in the locomotion of the snake, how it gets along. Verse 14, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Apparently, the snake didn't originally crawl on its belly. We have no idea what the snake looked like. They've had legs, had wings, we, we don't know. Uh, evolutionists have often pointed to skeletal irregularities in snakes saying that they must have had had. Legs uh, of course their what their point is is that those legs evolved away because they didn 't need them, but i don 't know we 're not sure if it had legs, apparently, there was something like this uh, legs or wings or something, but at this point, what we do know is that it crawled on its belly and it would eat dust, not that dust is its food, but I mean think of how 's a snake going to clean off its food it 's going to eat the dust that 's on its food, and as it crawls along on the ground there 's going obviously a lot of dust that 's going to get in. Uh, inside so it eats dust in that sense and even in the millennial reign of Christ according to Isaiah 65 25 Micah seven seventeen, the snake will continue to crawl on its belly as a sign of humiliation which results from sin and God in his providence he's the creator he can do what he wants and he chooses the snake in this whole situation to be an example to us of the humiliation that comes through sin snake is cursed physically. Secondly, the snake is cursed relationally. In verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. He will strike his heel. There's a little bit that we need to plow through here in this very significant verse. As we read each phrase, taking into consideration the context of chapter 3, it becomes evident that God is not talking about a fear or a revulsion of snakes per se. But he puts not revulsion, not fear, but enmity between the snake and the woman. The the Hebrew phrase means that he ordains, he sets, he appoints enmity. What's that word mean? Hostility. There's going to be war between you and the woman. In light of chapter 3 and verse 1, the talking snake it's evident that the text uses the snake as a representative of Satan, and so we are to conceive here of a line or a progeny of Satan and a line or a progeny of the woman. The hostility between these two offsprings will be epitomized, we see at the latter part of the verse, by the serpent striking his heel of the offspring and the woman crushing the serpent's head. Now, actually, the word crush and strike is the same Hebrew word. It should be translated that way. It really is better as a KJV has it, bruised. And it means, figuratively, death. So we have two ultimate combatants here at the end of the verse. You notice there that last phrase, look at it carefully. He will crush your head, or he will bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. He, singular, will crush your singular head. This verse almost demands to be reread. Who is he? We might expect she, we might expect they, but who is he? Well, the text does not answer the question, it just raises it. Those that weren't with us in the adult class, this I say to you carefully, that's what the rest of the Bible teaches. Who the he is and how he crushes the serpent's head. We talked about this this morning in our adult class. We notice here the singular, your heel, it's not... Specifically, the offspring of the serpent that will die. I think that's true. But what's emphasized here is that it is he who dies, and it is the serpent who dies. So the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman will experience an ongoing hostility. In the end, the representative of the serpent's offspring, the serpent himself, and the representative of the woman, this undefined he, will strike a mutual death blow as someone who takes their heel and stamps on the head of a snake. There's a crushing blow. In this event, it is death for both. And so God lays out here a program which will typify the history of man, the conflict between God's people and Satan's people. And immediately in the book of Genesis, we begin to find details of this prophecy. We have Cain. Enable, the offspring of the serpent, the godless, and the offspring of the woman, the godly. Noah and the world that perished, Abraham and the Canaanites, Israel and Egypt, and the Christian and the world. In other words, God lays out a program with this prophecy, a plot, which will be worked out in the rest of the Bible, where we learn emphatically that He, of verse 15, is Jesus Christ, who bruises the serpent's head on the cross. His heel is literally bruised on the cross, and the serpent is dealt a death blow culminated when Christ returns to earth. Now, Adam and Eve don't know the details of all of this, but they do have hope. And what they do know is that there will be an ongoing death struggle between the serpent's seed and the woman's. And Christian, this needs to inform the way we live life the way we understand life. We are in spiritual war. We are soldiers in a moral battle and we should live expecting moral resistance at every turn. The battle between right and wrong, light and darkness, is ongoing. It's ongoing in our own heart. It's ongoing within our homes. It's ongoing at work. It's ongoing in any relationship that we experience. There is a war between right and wrong, and in the broader sense, a war between God's people and Satan's people. And I think on the basis of this text and the whole theme of the Bible, it is wrong for us to pretend it away. It's wrong for us to take this conflict and to run from it to become disheartened by it, to get mad, to become resentful. Some of you are in places at work, in places with relationships close to you. Some of you young people in school, you sense this battle. You see it, you understand it, that there's a world that is at war with God. You feel like you're in between sometimes. Well, that's the way it is. That's the way this world was established after the fall. God, remember that it is God who put this hostility here and called us to meet the darkness head-on with the light. Our lot is to take up the battle for righteousness, to win the lost out of the darkness, to conquer for Christ. And any Christian who loses sight of the reality of this conflict is confused and out of sync with the major plot God has woven into human history. I don't like it. I I wish it wasn't that way, but to live righteously, to be God's person, means that people won't like us. It means that we'll have to be different. Listen, that isn't something weird. Young people, it's not just strange parents. It's more than that. That's the conflict that is part of life. There's God's people and there's Satan's people, and they will be at war until Jesus comes and settles the battle. Now, at war doesn't mean that we go to war with them. The war is only one directional, and that makes it all the harder. And that is why we have such things called, that's, that's called persecution. Because we don't fight back as the world fights. Our warfare is not with battle in the fleshly sense. Our warfare is to take light into the darkness. That means sometimes that people resist, don't like us. It's difficult. We're different. There's a battle. It's ongoing. What we need to do is take hope in the fact that we're God's people. And if you are living in conflict with unrighteousness as a righteous person, you can know at least one thing. Something's going right in your life. If there's no conflict, if you live your whole life trying to be like the world and there's no difficulty, there's no conflict with the world's way, then something's desperately wrong and you need to figure out whose side you're on. That all comes to us in the curse of the snake and there's so many more implications that will be drawn for the rest of our lives. But we move on to the curse of the woman in verse 16. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children... What's that? That's the physical curse. And then we move to the relational curse. Your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. Let's look at that first aspect, the, the physical curse. We don't know how the birth process was originally created to work. All we know is that there would now be much pain in the birth of a child. The curse is not having children or giving birth. The curse involves the pain with which a child is delivered. To understand the significance of this pronouncement, we've got to go back to chapter 2 and verse 7 and realize that people are body plus spirit. That's a unity. There's, there's a, a, the whole there is body plus spirit equals person. This means that what we see generally in the female body speaks of how God created the immaterial spirit of the woman as well. We don't have just a body that's separated from a spirit, but the skeletal, muscular, genital, reproductive systems of a woman clearly evidence that she was designed to provide the primary care to children within the garden. In conception, the woman's body receives the male seed. Following that single occasion, the man's involvement in nurturing the life of that zygote is over. For the female, it's just begun major physiological processes begin the complicated and protracted nurture of that life. He begets a child, she bears a child. When not with child, as an adult, she is reminded monthly that she's a potential mother. When with child, she, not he, is equipped by God with a uterus to nurture that new life with breasts to sustain the newborn. This is who she is by nature. This isn't something culture came up with. This isn't something culture can reverse, not with any natural way, at least. In the curse, the woman would undergo, in her most fulfilling experience as a human being, intense pain. All that being a woman is. That's not to say that fulfillment only comes through childbirth. We don't mean that. But it's to say that she is definitely created that way. And in this most fulfilling experience, it's going to be painful. It is typically in God's grace a hopeful pain. There is in such labor the hope of deliverance, the anticipated joy of holding a child. But this joyous event is nonetheless saturated with pain. And to this end, childbirth serves as a kind of dramatic skit, illustrating to us what life is. As Paul put it in Romans chapter 8, the entire universe is like a woman that is in labor, longing to be delivered. There's the hope up ahead, but right now it's painful. So as every woman gives birth, there is in that painful experience an ideal illustration of the hope of a renewed heaven and earth. But man, that's probably not something to talk to your wife about if you're with her in the delivery room. <laughs> probably not real interested in hearing about that at the moment. And don't eat pretzels, that's another thing. But um, there is a beautiful picture there. I mean, it's a very, it's a very human situation, isn't it? But there's a very beautiful picture there of what life is all about. A pain that is leading to the hope on the other side of the pain. But she is then secondly, not only cursed physically, this pain in childbirth, this very thing that she is, delivered with pain or experienced in pain, now we see that she's also cursed relationally. Verse 16, the second part of the verse Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. This phrase, we need to be careful, does not refer to male headship. Chapter 2 and the New Testament as a whole makes it very clear that God originally designed man as the head of the woman. She was created in chapter 2 before sin as his helper. Ephesians 5 speaks of the beauty of following and submitting to God and the woman's part that means to submit to her husband. That's not what the curse is. The key to this, uh, to understanding this curse is the word desire. And frankly, it's a little bit difficult to pick, to figure out. There's only two other uses of this word in the Hebrew in the Old Testament. One is found in the Song of Solomon, where it's used of romantic desire, and I, I don't think that's the point here at all. Because again, there's nothing evil, nothing cursed about romantic desire between these two. We just look at Genesis chapter two, uh, look at the Book of Solomon. There's nothing of the curse in that. But the word is used in Genesis chapter four and verse seven, and used so closely by an author that's so fond of linking words together. I think there's a key here for us. In chapter 4 and verse 7, we're dealing with Cain. And God speaks to Cain after the murder of Abel, and he says, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you. You must master it. Desires to have you. The picture is like a lion crouching there, ready to jump and to devour and to master So here I think the idea of desire is the same, a longing to overcome, a longing to rule over. We should probably take the word that way. In other words, Eve's original design as a woman was to revel in her husband's headship. Just like she was created to be a mother, she was created to be a submissive follower, but now her nature undergoes a painful change. And she will struggle with the passion to resist her husband's headship. It will no longer be natural to follow, no longer natural to help. But what is more, he will rule over you. It's a hard, hard phrase. That's not a blessing. It's a curse. The Hebrew word can be translated dominion or reign. This is not a word which blends with God's purpose for men as leaders. When God epitomizes the leadership and the headship of the male with the female, how does he speak of that relationship? Ephesians chapter 5, it's epitomized by love and by self-sacrifice, not by dominion and ruling. The point is not that headship is evil, but the point is this, the passion of the woman to resist her husband would be met head on by a naturally sinful tendency in his heart to rule over her, not to consider, but to oppress, not to help and love, but to harm, This pronouncement does not apply equally to every couple, and thankfully, by the common grace of God, it's not carried out to its fullest extent most often, and by the sanctifying grace of God in the lives of believers, it can be resisted to a great degree of success, but it's still there. In its own way, it is there in the human heart of every person that is born. And this phrase so depicts In general terms, the outworking of the male-female relationship throughout human history. You do not have to read feminist literature for very long to find that there is this very strong underlying theme of male oppression. And you don't have to go very far to read historically that that oppression is real and harmful. It's life. It's not right. It's not justified. But it's part of the curse. The woman's fallen nature, leading her to resist her role as helper, met head-on by the man's fallen tendency to oppress the woman. A relationship that was beautiful, that worked together perfectly, now finds that there's sand in the gears. And it grinds, and it grates, and there's difficulty, naturally, as the two come together. So in her most intimate, earthly relationship, she would experience frustration and heartache. This is the curse under which we labor. It is the curse that we must resist. He then addresses the man, beginning in verse 17. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Curse of the man. First of all, physically, in verse 17, to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife, you ate from the tree. It takes us back to chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. God says, I told you not to eat of this fruit. You were instructed to lead your wife to understand this obedience. You did not listen to me. Instead, you listened to her. And so the earth is cursed All the days of your life, painful toil. Verse 18, it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plant of the field. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. You will eat your food until until you return to the ground. So the earth is cursed. You ate of the forbidden tree. Now you're going to eat with pain. God blessed Adam by placing him in Eden to cultivate the garden under God's tutelage. But now the blessed ground was cursed and would offer serious resistance to the efforts of Adam. As with the woman, God puts his finger of curse on that which most defines the man. In his skeletal, muscular, reproductive structure, Adam was created as the primary subduer of the earth. His body reflecting, his spirit was designed to overcome external environmental obstacles, to reshape and master his environment. The very thing man was created to do, the very thing that defined him as a being, could now be accomplished only in pain. The earth was subjected to the second law of thermodynamics, and only intense sweat would overcome its stubbornness. It reminds us, does it not, believer, that work is supposed to be hard. Work is supposed to be hard. It's going to be hard. It's supposed to, not that this is the world that it was meant to be, uh, as far as our obedience goes, but it's supposed to be hard. The fatigue and the exhaustion you feel after a week of work is normal. It's not because you have a particularly bad job. That might be true, too, but it's normal. Money is supposed to be difficult to make. And it brings this question, do you routinely complain about how hard work is? Do you get frustrated and angry with how difficult it is to make ends meet and to accomplish life's goals? They always seem to be out there and you just can't beat down this resistance to get where you want to be. Among other things, such attitudes might stem from a very unrealistic view of life. There seems to me to be a common theme in the lives of mature people, and that is that they know how to handle hard work without complaint. They have learned the perseverance of labor, and they just keep plugging along without complaint. It's an attitude not only of acceptance, and I think to some degree that can be a very sinful attitude as well. Not only of acceptance, but an attitude of thankfulness. My life is wearing away. The labor is hard. That's right. That's what's meant to be. That's life. We can be thankful. The groan of our bodies against the burden is normal. But well, we then see that Adam is cursed also relationally in verse 19. By the sweat of your brow you will eat the food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now, is this one of those preacher's mistakes where they just try to make the outline fit? We have physical, relational curse of the snake, physical, relational curse of the woman. Nobody's questioning me here. Physical curse of the man. Nobody's questioning me here. Now I say relational curse? If we see the text, that's exactly what's here. Do you remember chapter 2 and verse 4? How does it start? These are the generations of the earth, the Adamah. Out of the ground is born Adam. He comes out of the ground. The children of the earth, the child of the earth, is Adam. He's been brought up out of the dust. In other words, the earth is pictured as the origination of the man. But what do we find here now? A return to the ground in death. And again, the Hebrew word adamah. Notice chapter 2 and verse 5, if I can just use this to illustrate. Chapter 2 and verse 5, we have no, I'll just throw in the Hebrew words because I think it helps us. We see different words in English too, but I think it helps us here. Verse 5 No shrub of the field should death had yet appeared on the earth, Eretz. And no plant of the field, Shaddai, had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, Eretz. And there was no man to work the ground, Adamah. We come then to chapter 3 and verse 19, and this is the ground from which the man was formed, and now he is going back to the ground, Adamah. He's returning in dust to the ground from which he was taken. It's not just a general term for the earth. It's not the field that he's going to cultivate, but it's the word used of the elements that God formed to make man. This ground from which you were taken, this ground that in that sense birthed you, you were created to till, to perfect under my tutelage, this ground will now resist you to the point that you will eat from it only as you sweat. The shadeth, the field, will be cursed. The Eretz, the earth, will be cursed. But here's the relationship. The ground from which you were birthed, you will return to it in dust. It's the curse of death. As Romans 5.12 puts it through the one man, Adam, death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. The ultimate curse is death. And it calls again to us for a reality check. No matter who we are, we are all, in the end, reduced to dust. God doesn't intervene in a unique way. We will all be reduced to dust. And anyone who does not remember this is delusional. There's an awful lot of delusional people in this world, and there's an awful lot of delusion that gets into our own thinking. We look at ourselves as invincible. Yeah, there's that death thing out there in the future, but we don't want to think about it. And we don't want to live as if it's really going to happen. God promised Adam that if he ate the forbidden fruit, he would surely die. Remember again the meaning there's not chronological on the day that you'll die but it's more emphatic. You will surely die on that day. You're a dead man. Adam curses God curses Adam and says you're a dead man. In this curse the seeds of death are sown in his body and fallen in him our lives are also a march to the grave. I'll try to Pick up the spirit here just in a moment. That's pretty heavy. But that's reality. That is reality. That's the life in which we live. We're not running from reality. We face it head on. We seek to understand it physically, socially, in every way. Life is hard because of the introduction of sin. Our sin. And it is hard because of God's curse. Think about that. It is our creator, this God who calls himself a God of love, who has decided to subject our lives to warfare with the unrighteous, to pain in childbirth and marital relationships, to resistance from our environment, and to the hideous clutches of death. How do you like a God like that? How do you love a God like that? To know that all this resistance that we endure in this troubled world and even death itself fulfills His design. Well, the answer is found in pages 6 through 1939 in the book in front of me. But let me give you just a brief outline. How do we love such a God? Number one, we must understand that we deserve nothing less. First of all, the sin of Adam and Eve was a heinous act of treason. God was not only the lawgiver, he was and is the creator of the universe. To reject his will and to assert human autonomy was a heinous act of high treason, which must be ruthlessly punished for our good. If we were left to rebel against the creator, we could never sustain a civilization. But God punishes and he disciplines and he keeps us in check. We deserve nothing less than what we have Because as the scriptures teach and as our own heart witnesses, we fell in Adam. What he did, what Eve did, we would have done too. And we've done it many times. Taken the clear, known word of God and rejected it. We deserve nothing less. Secondly, we deserve much, much more. God is dealing very graciously with us in this world of resistance. Think of the curse on the earth and then listen to the words of Acts 14:17. God has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. Our lives are filled with trials, but they are also filled with abundant graces. We deserve much worse. The curse is real. But as we keep plugging and we keep plowing, we find there is grace in it. There is joy in this life. We deserve nothing less. We deserve much worse. But here's a big one that's answered in the rest of the Bible. God redeems. God redeems. God is teaching us through all of the miseries of life, that there's a better life to come. There is sanctification now, which can help us work through these difficulties of our cursed nature as it conflicts with others. And in the world around, as we as we meet that resistance with a renewed attitude of thankfulness, there is great joy to be had in this life as we follow God. But beyond that, to a greater degree, The sanctification level that I experience now is all that there is. Kill me now. There's something bigger. There's something beyond. And all of this misery is teaching us to look to a greater fulfillment. Glorified bodies in a glorified heaven and earth. It's a theme that started here in Genesis 3 and it's not fulfilled until the Bible ends in Revelation 21-22. Verse 20, in chapter 21 we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. That's how we love a God who curses. He curses. His curse teaches us to perceive His blessing in redemption and teaches us in some unique way to love Him. To realize what Adam and Eve never realized fully that in Him alone is the source of joy. It is to a renewed body and a renewed earth that the Bible is pointing. And it is in the miseries of this life that our soul is taught to patiently long for the glories of eternity and someday to enjoy those glories like we never could have had this been a life of bliss. By virtue of the miseries of this life, we develop a thirst for no more war. No more pain, no more disorder or decay or disease, and no more sin. My heart longs for it. And above all else, these cursed realities replace with a perfect, harmonious fellowship with God, the one who cursed us when we walked away from him, that that we might learn that he blesses us when we walk with him. We learn in Genesis 3 and throughout biblical revelation that on our own self autonomous path, there is nothing but pain and misery and heartache. But in contrast, the psalmist.